And then Pakistan hatched a new plan to force the force us into submission. And while they pretended that they were negotiating with Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, plane loads of soldiers arrived every day, several times a day at Dhaka airport. And the cover story was, they are here to restore peace. But of course it was to kill every single person who had a voice reach. So it was March 25th, 1971. On my way to the television studios, I saw convoys of um, soldiers, military soldiers armed with battle gear and moving about in the streets of Taka. But as soon as I arrived at the studio, uh, the general manager uh, called me to his office. Uh, his name was Amiru Zaman Khan. And he said, Ruksana, go home. There's going to be very bad trouble and we cannot protect you. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, Samir Kalra speaks with Ruksana Hasib, who recounts her firsthand experience during the 1971 genocide in Bangladesh, as well as providing perspective on how Bangladesh is faring today, 50 years after gaining independence from Pakistan. Welcome. We're joined today by writer, author, and civic leader, Ruksana Hasib, who was born in Bangladesh and experienced the horrors of genocide firsthand during Pakistan's occupation in 1971. Her mother and little sisters were thrown in prison camp after her father, a military officer, was taken away by armed Pakistani soldiers. After Bangladesh became independent, her father's remains were discovered in one of many mass graves. He was laid to rest with the highest military honors in a significant memorial in Komila, and a military parade ground was dedicated to his name in Dhaka. Ruksana received her MBA from Rutgers University and worked at Citibank as a commercial lending officer. She later went into business and was featured in the Philadelphia Inquirer as a successful entrepreneur. The author of Shadows in the Sun, Shackles of Time, and Redemption of Red, Roxana is passionate about speaking out against abuse and indignities to women around the world and against religious extremism, and was a regular contributor to Huffington Post. She has served in several civic leadership positions in the United States, including president of the Delaware Valley Bangladesh American Association, and is a steering committee member of Bucks Against Gun Violence and is a participating member of the local chapter of Zonta International Charities. She was also appointed by Philadelphia Mayor Wilson Good to serve as a Commissioner of Asian American Affairs. We're very pleased to have Roxana with us here today. Welcome, Roxana. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, Samir. It's good to see you. So, Roxana, before we talk a little bit about the events of 1971, I think it would be great for the listeners to get an idea about your background in Bangladesh, your upbringing, and what life was really like before 1971 and before the events of 1971 took place. Well, I my journey is very different from the average Bengali girl of my generation because I was born in a tin roof house in a picturesque hills of Silat, close to some of the most wonderful, finest tea gardens, the beauty of which is spectacular. My father then was in military college and my teenage mother was left behind with my grandparents. So 
my grandfather was a farmer and taught me reverence for the earth and all its bounties. And my grandmother was a herbal, herbal healer. She was like the Mother Teresa of her times, and she just healed people with her herbs and whatever else that she did. That was her mission in life. So I feel that I have traveled 200 years. I'm 200 years old because I had not seen running water or electricity, indoor plumbing or a paved road or a motor car till I was four years old when my father came and uh, took us when he finished his military college, uh, took us to Dhaka City. So um, then from then on, we went to one military cantonment to another, both in uh, Bangladesh as well as in Pakistan. So, and whatever that I'm able to speak today, I uh, credit it to my father, who was uh, very advanced for his time, and he um, educated both my sister and me in the finest uh, schools available in the country and encouraged critical thinking without encumbrances of or constraints of conservative norms. And my mother emphasized kindness and charity, and that's where my morality comes from. So I was an exceptionally bright student, finished school in, in high school in seven years. So in the end, my father decided that I should be left in Holy Cross College in Taka so that my studies would not be would not be interrupted. And there I finished, I graduated and I went to Dhaka University, got a degree in psychology and sociology. And after that, of course, I studied finance and economics and got my MBA in Rutgers. And while I was um, in Holy Cross College, I worked as an announcer for Dhaka Television and later became the anchor for the nightly news broadcast in English and quite successfully managed college during the day and television at night and a little romancing on the side. Uh, by the way, I married the guy. Uh, <laughs> life growing up in Dhaka before 1971 was, I thought, was very simple because it was not until I was 12 or 13 years old that I became aware of the conflicts between people of East Bengal and those of Pakistan. My dad, who had a hunger for learning uh, about the rest of the world, discussed politics and history and cultures and read excerpts of biographies of great men and women of politics and science. So at a very early age, I began to read history and came across the Bangladesh language movement of 1952. And I realized that the British, after they were finally booted out in 1947, we were not really free. We had new masters, and that was Pakistan. Um, West Pakistan, now being the new rulers, decided that Urdu shall be the language of Pakistan. And of course, the Bengalis pretty much didn't want to do it. They did not want their mother language to be erased. So the Bengalis rose up in protest and marches and street protests followed for a long time till an order was made to open fire on the students. And um, many student leaders were gunned down during that massive protest, but the others just carried them on their shoulders and marched on. 
Finally, Pakistan, after a lot of um, days of trouble, rescinded the order, but the line was drawn in blood. So we have a lot of blood, blood in the history there. I always felt that as people, we were Bengalis first. Very different from the Pakistani counterpart. We had our own language. Uh, we looked different. We wore saris, wore flowers in our hair, singing, dancing. Poetry was ingrained in our culture. And um, I also then began to see how Pakistan treated the people of Bengal. They treated them more as a colony rather than a part of their own country. So East Bengal, East Pakistan grew the jute, sugarcane, and other crops and fisheries, etc. And Pakistan took the bulk of the foreign exchange earnings and began to build West Pakistan, the new capital in Islamabad, while the Bengali farmers toiled and just languished, languished in poverty. And the glass ceiling was very meticulously enforced as well. Pakistanis held all the high posts in every sector, whether it was military or civil. And the underlying discontent kept growing. The Bengalis protested and marched for equality and the share of their own toil, and nothing happened. Then in 1970, the biggest natural disaster hit Bengal. Tidal wave as high as 60 feet rushed to the shore and washed away entire villages. And of course, followed by strong winds and thrashing rains. An accurate count of the death toll is not really known, but the estimates are that a million people were perished. 300,000 were washed away at the first bulk, and later on people died from diseases and injuries and waterborne uh, diseases. But the Pakistani government did not even declare a state of emergency. They did not come down from their perch in um, Islamabad and view the damages. And the Bengalis, when Bengalis were very upset. And when the bloated bodies of people and, and livestock began to clog the rivers, it was the Bengalis who buried their own debt with the help of, of international agencies. So this became another issue that the Pakistani did not care at all, not a bit. So during this time, my father was transferred back from Karachi to Kumilla. And um, he too was deeply upset about the discrimination and, the, and that the Pakistan army was doing and wanted to resign his commission and was looking forward to settling down and living in Dhaka where we have a house. But in the meantime, in November 1970, national elections were held. And there was lots of unrest in the country and fiery speeches in, in uh, Ramna Park. And Sheikh Mujibur Rahman rose to be this charismatic leader that Bengalis followed. They were awakened by his fiery speeches and for a better Bengal. But when Sheikh Mujibur Rahman won the election, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto of Pakistan did not want to concede. They did not want to hand over power. So 
when the power was not being handed over, tens of thousands of Bengalis took to the streets each day and every day. There were daily marches, hartals, forced closings of shops, schools, colleges, and sporadic violence spread through the city of Dhaka. The tension kept growing. And then Pakistan hatched a new plan to force the force us into submission. And while they pretended that they were negotiating with Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, plane loads of soldiers arrived every day, several times a day at Dhaka airport. And the cover story was, they are here to restore peace. But of course, it was to kill every single person who had a voice reach. So it was March 25th, 1971, on my way to the television studios, I saw convoys of um, soldiers, military soldiers, armed with battle gear and moving about in the streets of Taka. But as soon as I arrived at the studio, uh, the general manager uh, called me to his office. Uh, his name was Amiru Zaman Khan. And he said, Ruksana, go home. There's going to be very bad trouble and we cannot protect you. But as I was coming out of the studio and got on a cycle rickshaw, there was this headline saying, peace talk, uh, talks going well, everything is fine. So, but the sense was there was something horrible going to happen. Even it happened there, even the rickshaw wala wanted to go home after he dropped me off. So it was close to midnight, 25th March, 1971, when we woke up to the sounds of continuous, rapid gunfire. And then megaphones on every street announcing emergency curfew till further notice. Taka was under siege. And sporadic gunfire continued till the sun came up. And then we learned that how highly organized the killing operation was. They had lists of names and addresses of Bengali officers, teachers, lawyers, student leaders, and others who they thought was were um, um, a threat. They went into every neighborhood, dragged them out in front of their wives and children, and shot them. The army sees the television studio, and that night, the Dhaka television program manager, engineer, a cameraman, and some others were taken out back and shot. Their remains were never found. The radio station was under siege and started pro broadcasting propaganda. So in one night, they killed thousands. Very quickly, Dhaka was in their control and Pakistani soldiers were spreading their atrocities throughout the countryside and simultaneously began their killing in other cities, including Kumilla, where my father was stationed after his recent return. Please take your time. I know this is a, a difficult you know, talk about. My dad had just then handed over his resignation because he was disgusted with the discrimination and the glass seeing and was waiting when our whole world just collapsed. And in Dhaka, I was frantic to have news of my family, but the phone lines were disabled and 
there was no way of getting in touch. You couldn't even go out for days. A few days later, when the curfew was lifted, I went to army headquarters to see the Pakistani general, Farman Ali. General Farman Ali, who was later known as the butcher of Taka. But I didn't know then, I called him Uncle Farman. And I asked him that I'm looking for my dad, I have no news. He picked up the phone in front of me and when he put the phone down, I saw the ex his expression change. And I knew there was something very bad had happened, but he didn't give me any information. So right then and then, I, I knew I had to do something because I found myself to be the head of the family at age 20. And I had to find, make efforts to find out what happened to my mother and my sisters. And finally, I got some news that my mother and my sisters were taken to a prison camp where 250 other women, women and children were also held. So apparently, uh, so after that, the, um, one of my, the, the, my economics professor's friend, who was the governor's, Pakistani governor's um, attache, this economics professor, by the way, later became my husband. He took my plea to the governor and the governor ordered that my family be released. So months later, my family was released. And that's when I heard the horror stories of how they surrounded the house that we lived in, in Kumila. And um, at gunpoint, my father was escorted out. Uh, and we didn't know, there was no news of him at all. So the Pakistanis, however, misjudged the resolve of the Bengalis and within days, and just like out of the ashes of a burning nation, there was fires everywhere. People were killed left and right. Uh, and uh, they had a system of setting fires in the villages and shoot people as they ran out. So out of this burning nation, there was these avenging angels that appeared, the freedom fighters called Mukti Bahini. They became a formidable force. The Mukti Bahini was the officers that had crossed the border to India. And then tens of thousands more joined from all walks of life, students, policemen, shopkeepers, teachers, India played a pivotal role in arming the freedom fighters, and they successfully carried daring raids swiftly and disappeared, leaving the Pakistani military baffled. And of course, within the, within the country, all of the areas bordering India, people in staggering numbers left to seek shelter in India. And they were housed in, housed in refugee camps and the lack of food, water and medical services caused a humanitarian crisis of, of monumental proportions. The world 
remained silent. The world did not speak. Then the greatest sitarist, Ravi Shankar, came to uh, Beatles' George Harrison and told the story of the Bengali plight. And then they together organized the Bengal concert called Bangladesh in Madison Square Garden. And singers and musicians, all great singers like Eric Clapton, Ali Akbar Ali Khan, and others joined in to raise funds to help the Bengali refugees in India. The world suddenly took notice. And then there was a movement of Friends of Bengal that gained momentum in America, and there were marches and protests in America in front of the White House. So it got to the point that. America was forced to then rethink their support of murderous dictators like Yahya Khan and stopped giving them arms. In fact, physically, people at, in the Philadelphia docks tried to stop a ship, ship from coming into the docks. And that obviously helped. And the pressure worked because the collective conscience of a nation was raised. And at this point, there was either a uh, do or die kind of situation. So Prime Minister Indira Gandhi got ready to give the Mukti Bahini, the freedom fighters, land support, air support. The Pakistan army was trapped. And it was nine months later, a million people were murdered and nine, but 90,000 Pakistani soldiers surrendered to the Mukti Bahini and the Indian commander. So my father was, my father's uh, news, we still didn't have news, but then came news. My father's barber, who was not murdered by the Pakistan soldiers because Pakistani soldiers, because they needed his services, was the eyewitness to my father's sad end. The account of what happened to my father and others were really chilling. The barber took the authorities to seven mass graves. It was like just three miles from where my mother lived where 500 bodies were buried. And after my mother's father's remains were identified, he was laid to rest with every honor that possibly could be. But then I had two sisters. One was three, one was seven. And my mother was left with them. No home because our house was ransacked. Nothing, it had to begin. So rebuilding our personal lives and the country was a monumental task. However, now that the Pakistanis who were raping our resources, we were in a better place as a country and new opportunities opened up. Today, Bangladesh is a thriving economy. It is the second largest exporter of ready-made garments in the world. But huge problems still remain, of course, because I think uh, the country's population is over 160 million and it has not been addressed appropriately yet. 
and of course there are problems in the in the factory workers the face it needs regulation garment factory workers work in unsafe conditions and get unfair wages but there is an upside to it for women who had no choice but to be domestic servants now have a job which allows them to have a semblance of dignity and economic independence and then many ngos uh, opened up and have made remarkable strides with women's rights although they have a long way to go still and dr yunus's microcredit lending provided a wealth of opportunities for women in our country and i had at a meeting in philadelphia when dr yunus was were here visiting here uh, i had asked him um why he prefers to lend to women and he said that women always stay and look after the family the men may go and have another wife or uh, other children and leave these people behind but the mother will never leave the children and if she has two chickens she will feed them with uh, uh, two eggs and sell two and make more and return the credit that was given to her so that i found very interesting primary education has improved remarkably and the literacy rate at this point in bangladesh is 72.8% up from when i was born 20% so it's a major 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 stride and women in bangladesh are rising to take their place in the workforce there is a all women bangladesh peacekeeping unit which was uh, dispatched to haiti to when uh, uh, the i think the floods happened or the earthquake happened and men were taking advantage of women and my niece is the highest ranking woman uh, airline captain in bangladesh also of course population control they have failed so this is the story of uh, bangladesh the way it happened and all the soldiers that were taken to india were allowed to go home after about 2 years no one paid a price there was some talk of war crimes but bangladesh was not important enough to the world in general to pursue that and so nothing happened uh, to the people who have destroyed our lives and killed our brothers and fathers and mothers and sons and here we are as far as you you talked about religious extremism in bengal we were always bengalis first while i was growing up i have rarely seen a woman wearing a hijab in fact i've never seen a woman wearing a hijab but in the villages of course women um, are very modest they cover their head with the uh, anchal of the sari when they are in the presence of men but women work in the fields and my maternal grandmother when her husband died my grandfather died he just she just managed the rice crops 
by herself and had hundreds of people working for her because they were rice traders. At the moment, I think that religious extremism has become a world issue. And Islamophobia has also, in, which has been encouraged throughout the Western world, also brings out that religious extremism. However, a vast majority of Muslims are targeted in many, many countries. Hindu-Muslim animosity, you know about India. We've had that animosity that the British nurtured with their divide and rule policy when they colonized India and ruled us for over 200 years. And just recently, in recent years, over 600,000 Muslims had to flee Myanmar atrocities and they fled to Bangladesh because that's the nearest place. And um, I I was very disappointed that the Dalai Lama when this was happening, when the Rohingya Muslims were being murdered and um, leaving in droves and crossing over the rivers um, on little boats, said nothing for a very, very long time. I wrote about it. And of course, you know about the about China. The Muslims are being in, kept in camps and China is uh, committing terrible human rights abuses. And even in America, during the last four years, I have come to feel that I'm the other in America and fear for my brown sons with Muslims' names. Religious bigotry, I think, is a world issue nurtured for political expediency and power. So, Ruxan, if I can maybe just um, interject a little bit here and just I want to kind of um, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that story. I think, you know, it's every time I hear it and I've you know heard you in front of crowds in Washington, D.C. talk about your family's story. So even though I've heard it before, it still is a very powerful story. Um, and, you know, I'm glad that you're able to share that, you know, in terms of what you and your family went through with our listeners as well. I wanted to go back and I just really something that you said earlier about how Pakistan and their establishment treated uh, Bengal like a colony and the kind of the steps that led up to the actual 1971 events in terms of repression of language, then repression of the uh, elections. What was the fear? I mean, if you were to identify what were the Pakistani leaders afraid of by allowing those elections to take place or allowing Bengali to become you know, a language alongside with Urdu as, you know, the national languages, because obviously from a population perspective, the number of uh, citizens in East, um, at the time, East Pakistan, and that part of the country were much more than in West Pakistan. So if you had to identify what was the, f- the fear of the leadership in Pakistan and what kind of prompted them to repress all of these movements um, that were taking place in the lead up to 1971? Well, As far as the Pakistanis' behavior was, uh, they've had to rescind the Urdu-only order because of the movement 
21st February 1952, which became the Mother Language Day even in the UN later on. They had to rescind that. And like all people who behave like rulers, whether it is uh, Pakistan, who thought of Bengal as more aligned with West Bengal, because we we were very different from them. There's 1,100 miles of Indian territory between East Pakistan and West Pakistan. And Islam was the only bond. And it was a delicate bond because we, we did not identify with the Pakistanis. My mother, who lived in Pakistan so much, felt like she was among people that were strangers who spoke a different language, looked different than us. Uh, Bengalis are much darker and we are, uh, are, we are not that tall, um, but they are tall and, and uh, a lot of more forceful. And I think the fear was that they would lose control because they have never been allowed the Bengalis to shine mm-hmm. and kept the glass ceiling going. So when we won the election, their fear was good to feared that if the Bengalis took control and they are the majority, he might never get it back. I think Bhutto was a big player in this decision. And Bhutto was power hungry. Uh, Bhutto happened to be a friend of uh, one of my cousin's uh, uncle, Kaiser Rashid, who was in, in the civil service. So I had actually met him, but I, I was too young at that point to uh, ask any relative questions to him. But from what I learned from General Jelani's wife, who lives in America, she's now 90-something years old, and um, we are good friends. And what I heard from her was that Bhutto told the generals that Pakistan, Bangladesh, we we do a 72-hour terror They'll never raise their heads again. We were rich in jute, in 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 sugarcane, in other things, and we were the we were the people who earned the money that they could have to build their own country, make it better. Look at Pakistan now. I think it's a failed state. Look at what is happening. So Bhutto was afraid of that, rightfully. But Bhutto had the wrong idea that he could forcefully take it away because obviously we had gotten a taste of democracy and it was not going to go back. No, that's absolutely, I think, a good point there. Um, And, you know, you talked a lot about the actions of the Pakistani army in terms of when they were carrying out their atrocities did they have a work with local collaborators who are those collaborators and how did that um, play out in terms of um, the events uh, of the war and during 71 well there was there was some accusations that they were local collaborators but the local collaborators were the heads 
heads of um, some of the collaborators who were finally brought to a horrific end by the present prime minister. Um, many, many people say they were innocent. So they were not that many, in my opinion, they were not that many local collaborators. The Pakistanis had a plan and they, the Pakistan army was supposed to be one of the mightiest, if you remember. They, they were a mighty Pakistani army uh, and they were well organized. So they knew what they were doing because we were all out there making ourselves vulnerable on the streets, talking this and that. And, and their, their strategy was to kill everyone that would defy them in any way, including the army officers who were Bengali, the teachers. So I, there was some talk, they were after Bangladesh was born, uh, became independent. There were some killings of the Biharis by Bangladeshis, who Bangladeshis, some of the Bangladeshis says were collaborators, but they, it has never been proven that the Biharis were collaborators. They have may have been isolated cases, but uh, there was never any uh, proven cases. You know, one of the things that's been written about uh, the war and the Pakistan army's role in it is the use of sexual violence. Um, and there's been a lot written about uh, camps that were set up, rape camps. I think some um, authors and analysts have talked about it. And of course, as we know, and we look at history, sexual violence is often used as a, a weapon um, to subjugate a population, uh, particularly during wartime. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and what role that played um, during the uh, 1971 war? I am so glad you brought that up because in Taka alone, the city of Taka alone in the cantonment area, <clears throat> 500 young women were abducted and there was a camp for the soldiers to rape them. And when they were let free, you know, our culture and religion ostracizes such things because due to no fault of theirs, they were the victims, but they were victimized twice, once by their society and once by the people who carried out these atrocities. And a lot of them became, uh, became beggars, street walkers, killed themselves. They had children who became street children. So the sexual violence was very much a part of the Pakistanis' plan to keep the soldiers happy. And they didn't, it just is so horrific that that was a reward that they got after the killing all day. That was the reward that they got so that they were desensitized by the horrific daytime atrocities. And now they are going to go and commit atrocities to these women. So it just is a horrible thing. I don't know of particular case cases, but from what I have read and seen, just in Dhaka city alone were 500. So in every city, there must have been more. 
Sure. The Pakistani soldiers were brutal. They were brutal. Absolutely. And I think, you know, to that point, there was a commission report that was actually ordered by the Pakistani government itself, the Hamdur inquiry report that actually recorded some of the orders that these generals admitted to um, giving the orders to, you know, commit various atrocities and crimes to, you know, blatantly kill, you know, innocent civilians, intellectuals, you know, Hindus, um, go after women, et cetera. And so I think there is a record of them even admitting it, you know, through some of these post, um, you know, inquiry reports that have come out, but it doesn't seem like the country has fully healed. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to your thoughts about that, that I know there were some international criminal tribunals that were held and they, um, you know, there were some in Bangladesh that supported them because it, they thought it was some form of accountability and justice where the local, some local groups that were accused of participating, as you alluded to earlier, were um, tried. Others in the international community criticized the tribunals for lacking um, certain safeguards and um, having certain procedural flaws to them. I'm curious to your overall feelings that do you think what there has been enough closure? Do you think that there has been justice? I know you mentioned justice has not been done. What do you think is left to be done and what needs to happen for the country really to heal fully and to move forward? Well, as you said uh, so eloquently, justice has not been done. We feel that we were victimized, Bangladeshi as Bangladeshi. I personally feel I was victimized by the Pakistanis first, and then I was victimized a second time when all these soldiers were allowed to go home. And, And actually, about five years ago, I got a phone call from a Pakistani soldier. He was a colonel, retired colonel. And I met him for lunch. And I didn't realize that he was he was in Bangladesh at that time. And then he told me about uh, Bangladesh. And then he was telling me that, oh, and it was very difficult to be in, in India. And when I realized that, I, I said, He's one of the killers, but you are allowed to go home. And my dad didn't get to come home. So many people didn't get to come home. You murdered us and raped us. And I just paid the bill. It was at PF Chang's and uh, I came, came back when I realized that he was a Pakistani. But I have not heard Pakistanis admit to what happened. So I think one of the things that might heal our sense of outrage, not our scars, our scars will remain with us all the time, but our sense of outrage may heal a little bit if the Pakistanis admitted what they had done. They call it a operation. They call it a they don't call it anything but a military operation. And I heard that from this soldier who was there having lunch with me. But I have to admit, one time I was at a, as a, at a dinner party. A gentleman came up to me who I have seen many times in many places. And he held my hand and he said, Roxana, I'm so sorry. And I said, what for? And he said, I didn't realize you were a 
you're a Bangladeshi. Even though I wear a sari and everything, he didn't realize I was a Bangladeshi. And he said that I'm so sorry for what my people did to me. And then we chatted a long time. So there is, there may be some person there who lives in America or who is enlightened enough to go beyond the propaganda that Pakistan fed Pakistan and is still feeding them. I was in Pakistan a few years ago and I had a car and a driver and the driver was Patan and he was chatting with me and I said, yes, I came from America. So he said, uh, are you from Lahore? And I said, no, I'm from Bangladesh. And even though I don't know whether he was even alive during that time, he was much younger, but there was, I could feel that distance, that fear. I started to fear. I started to be afraid of being alone in, in the car with him. So Pakistan has done nothing to admit the, to the atrocities. They have done nothing to apologize. They have done nothing to just accept. And until that happens, we will, as a country, will always be enemies. And to this point that, of course, if my son brings a Pakistani girl home and says I'm marrying her, of course, I'll say, of course, yes, his happiness is more important. But I will not go out of my way to say, OK, I will have uh, a Pakistani relative. This is how. Still, after 50 years, how awfully betrayed we feel. So this betrayal will stay with us. But they could do something, but they won't. Look at their own country. Yeah, and you know, beyond Pakistan, I think, you know, the other player in all of this is the U.S. Um, I think we saw a complete foreign policy failure um, by the Nixon um, administration um, when they not only failed to intervene, but they continued to support Pakistan at the time for their own perception of geostrategic reasons. And I think thanks to the the work of uh, Professor Gary Bass and his book, the, the Blood Telegram, we've seen a lot of those declassified cables. And it's horrific to see the messages that were being furiously sent back from the Consul General, General Archer Blood in Dhaka back to the State Department and, you know, to see those just being, you know, ignored um, and to hear some of the recordings of um, or the transcripts of the conversations between uh, President Nixon and uh, um, Kissinger and the callousness with which they talked about uh, the trauma and the suffering that took place there. What would you say is the what would you want from a U.S. perspective? Um, would you sense see that there should be some sense of acknowledgement of, you know, what happened at that time and the failure to, you know, not only deal with it then, but um, to even acknowledge that it was a genocide in the first place? Well, it would be nice if they did acknowledge that. And um, <clears throat> I did do a presentation in Kane University some years ago with some other of my um, colleagues and only the university, we were trying to have a genocide study and they wouldn't even let us call it a genocide. I would like for the U.S. to admit, even though 
even though the, the, the all of this stuff that you talked about uh, that was declassified, no one talked about it, but maybe you and I. Sure. No one. It found no traction because we as a people do not matter. Pakistan matters because it borders Afghanistan and uh, Russia. And we as, no, China, I'm sorry. Um, we as a people don't matter. And therefore we are not even, sometimes I feel that the Western world has really ignored the Bengalis and Bangladesh. And it would be helpful if they just accepted that a genocide had happened. The Bangladesh genocide has happened. And they were complicit in it. Because nothing can change, but it would be nice. Do you have any way that we can present that? We'd love to present that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm glad that you brought that up because this is part of our larger commemoration project. As we all know, the 50 year anniversary of the 1971 genocide is coming up on March 25th, um, which was the beginning of as what the Pakistanis term Operation Searchlight, um, which really kicked off the events. And, um, you know, we have a lot of work planned on the advocacy realm, education realm, awareness realm. And I think as you correctly identified, part of the problem is just getting getting it on people's radar, getting that awareness out there. And I think that's step one. And that's why I'm so glad that you could join us today to kind of really share your story and talk about, you know, the pain and the suffering that your family went through, but also what the implications have been this many years later um, for Bangladesh, for yourself and how, you know, we see, continue to see the U.S. ignore uh, Bangladesh in terms of its foreign policy. Um, and so we're really hoping that this is, you know, part of a long, long-term campaign and initiative to really shed light on some of what occurred at that time and to get its proper recognition. Um, so while you said the scars will never go away, at least we can um, get some sense of acknowledgement of what happened by the multiple parties that were responsible um, for what happened. And so I want to really thank you for joining us and sharing your story and, um, you know, really, um, happy that uh, we've known each other for so many years now and gotten the chance to hear this story um, in Washington, D.C. and tell it to others. Um, and so, you know, thank you for all the work that you're doing and uh, look forward to continuing to work together to raise awareness on this issue. Thank you, Samir. It was a pleasure talking with you and I hope to work with you further. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate. 